this is reminding us how communal and how physical religion is. And it's not just uh, spiritual ideas in your head. It is rules and practices and beliefs that shape how we uh, operate in the world. From, you know, how you sing to whether you grow your beard or what you eat and so and how you gather together. So these things are colliding now with a, a, a physical world that is has some threats to safety. From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. The steady call to reopen churches, amplified by presidential encouragement, is thrilling to some and alarming to others. How do we return to worship when the act of group singing, chanting, and praying can be so dangerous? How can churches and religious institutions in general be told to cease their primary function. Beliefs producer Jay Woodward spoke with RNS opinion columnist Jeffrey Salkin and RNS editor-in-chief Bob Smetana to assess the tensions facing religious institutions across the country. Thank you both for joining us on Beliefs. I have Rabbi Salkin, the author of Martini Judaism, commentator for Religion News Service. Welcome, Rabbi. Thank you. It's good to be here. And we also have the editor-in-chief for Religion News Service, Bob Smetana. Thank you for joining us, Bob. I'm glad to be here as well. So I've asked you both here because I've seen a conversation that is starting to develop. We've been looking at a lot of instances of people being asked to dispense with certain tenets of their religious practice in order to meet the demands of the day and the pandemic. And different communities are meeting it with different and varying levels of acceptance or defiance. And it's been getting some into trouble and it's been really dividing a lot of people, both in their own communities and in the nation at large. Rabbi Salkin, we were looking at a couple of weeks ago, a funeral in the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn. Maybe you could just start by setting the scene for us on what was happening in that community and what the fallout was. Thank you so much. Well, uh, the Satmar are uh, a very ex- part of the ultra-Orthodox uh, community, what is sometimes called pejoratively the Black Hat uh, community. And yes, they uh, have persisted in holding uh, various public events with uh, many people. And I also know that Mayor de Blasio uh, quote-unquote, lost it with that community uh, several weeks ago, and he criticized the Jewish community for which he was taken to task. Uh, moreover, since that has happened, there have been continuing gatherings of uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews uh, violating uh, various societal norms. So yes, this has been happening. Mm-hmm. Bob, you've been tracking some stories that have been coming out of California for RNS regarding uh, some communities that were pushing to come out for Pentecost and were also chafing deeply under the restrictions on their religious practice. So yeah, in California in particular, there are a group of churches that are taking issue with the uh, reopening plan. A lot of this is a debate over uh, whether religious communities are essential and then whether religious communities are being treated the same as other places. So, you know, if your donut shop can open, why can't a religious community open? If you can have restaurants open. Um, and every state, of, of course, has different rules for this. So that's part of the confusion. But there are um, there was another case in Kentucky where 
congregations wanted to have basically drive-in services. You drive into the parking lot, they set up a you know a stage and a loudspeaker, and you'd listen in, by sitting in your car. And the the city tried to ban them, and some people were cited for for being at the event. So there's a lot of this kind of um, question of you know what's essential. Uh, can the state decide that? And then should religious communities be treated uh, the same as non-religious communities? And then there's a, a third kind of question of that about what is the right parallel between a religious community and another, you know, another organization? Is it a gym? Is it a theater? Is it a school? What is it? Well, let's talk about that for a second. It seems like there is a difficult judgment being placed on on the idea of worship and congregating. Is it essential to congregate to worship? Rabbi Salkin, why don't I throw that to you? Well, thank you. This is a debate that we have been engaging in for the last 10 weeks or so. I want to give a paradoxical statement here, which is that number one, in Judaism, the notion of gathering together, of being together, is central to worship. The synagogue is called the Beit HaKnesset, the place of gathering uh, together. That's what synagogue actually means. That being said, there is a competing value, and that is the value of pikuach nefesh, of saving a life. And Judaism says that almost any mitzvah, any religious obligation, uh, takes a back seat to that of saving a life. Moreover, one must be stringent in that religious commandment. In other words, you must do everything possible to save a life. And if you're in a situation where there could be danger to life, then you must avoid that situation. Now, by the way, this can take you to absurd places. Uh, whenever I get on the, the expressway or drive outside of my, my neighbor or on the street, I am taking a particular risk, but I'm not deliberately doing something that by its very definition is dangerous. So, Yes, gathering together is important. The real issue for us has been, and we are now struggling with this as we come to approach uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur at the end of the summer, is um, to what extent can we redefine what community means? Is an online gathering truly a gathering? The Orthodox have been struggling with this uh, through the lens of Jewish law. And more liberal branches of Judaism have been struggling this, I think, through the lens of sociology. Or to put it to you this way, has the internet destroyed community or has it merely redefined it? I believe that we are now at a civilizational crossroads wherein we will be debating that question. I think Rabbi Salkin's right. We, we actually ran a, an interview the other day with Diana Butler-Bass, who was a... Um, scholar and historian and who thinks a lot about especially Christianity and how it's adapting to technology. And she had an interesting point that in, and I think this is true for every faith community, in the last 10 weeks, we've done about 30 years of adaptation to technology. So folks who never used uh, technology in their services or didn't do online events are having to do this. And then they have to ask this question, you know, what is is it a real community? And how is one of the points she made is that uh, the internet and say a, a Zoom or a video meeting is different than uh, television. So, television, you're watching, it's a one way street. 
uh, with this kind of technology, it's often a two-way street. And so uh, she's, there's a debate, for, for example, in liturgical churches that, um, about the Eucharist and whether it can be celebrated when people aren't in the same room. So some, some groups like the Episcopal Church have and the Catholic Church say, no, you can't do that sacrament online. Other Protestant groups say, yes, you can. We can find a way to do that. So there's that kind of bigger question I think that we're all dealing with is what's the nature of community? How can technology facilitate that and does it change that? Um, I think the, the other big thing is that I think um, this is reminding us how communal and how physical religion is. And it's not just uh, spiritual ideas in your head. It is rules and practices and beliefs that shape how we uh, operate in the world. From, you know, how you sing to whether you grow your beard or what you eat and so and how you gather together. So these things are colliding now with a, a, a physical world that is has some threats to safety. Perhaps we can look at that story real quick. There is a, a pair of doctors, Sikh doctors in Canada, who elected to shave their beards so that they could better uh, – adapt to the N95 masks that could get a proper seal against their face. And they were widely regarded as, you know, heroes of the pandemic for setting aside certain tenets of Sikhism, uh, namely the growing of the beard. And then our commentator on RNS, Simranjit Singh, presented an alternative narrative to the interpretation of this moment by saying this is a false choice we're butting up against a, an idea of the civil society and religion in a way that we haven't before, where there are demands being placed on religious societies to not have the freedom to express in every way they would like. Rabbi, what is the increasing number of humans, the globalization, going to be doing to religion as it goes forward? Well, that's a really interesting uh, possibility of conversation and dialogue, I think. One of the things that we've discovered in the short run, certainly not in the long run, uh, is that as we go online, as we go beyond the walls of our synagogue, in one sense, we have been liberated from uh, the notion that we are bound by the physical concept of community. I have the same concerns about singing uh, that, that that you would have, and I just do not. I don't really have a good answer to that. See, my other fear, which is a parallel fear, is that in fact we are going to be um, uh, that we're going to be. Uh, how can I, how, how how can I put this? That we're we're going to be so silenced that it's going to really cut into what we do. And the other possibility, other probability is that worship, which should be participatory, is going to become entirely passive or as it were, worshiptainment. Mm. Mm. There's a new word for a new century. That's horrifying. Well, that is, that is, <laughs> that's right. It's this a whole, there's one thing I was thinking. One of the things that Simran uh, argues in his piece is that Sometimes we make false choices. We say, well, you either can do this religious practice or you can protect the community and have public health. And, you know, so for his argument for these two Sikh doctors is their faith tells them to help people in their time of need and tells them shaving your beard is or keeping the beard long actually is a sign of worship to God. So his point was that we could be more creative. Like there, there are ways, for example, for these doctors, there were other are there other 
kinds of masks they could wear? Are there other kinds of uh, practices? So we're seeing a lot of this with religious groups. I think the, the, the one that's interesting to me is the drive-in church, you know, or the drive-in worship service. That's kind of interesting. Uh, and are there social distancing people can do? But yeah, I think the, the Rabbi Salkin is exactly right. There are practices uh, it's that, that religion is physical, right? That you got to sing, you are together. It's participatory. It's not entertainment and it's not all in your mind. It is a thing you do with your body and people do together. So if you start removing those things and, and all the, all the physical aspects are, are part of the way we make meaning of the world around us. So not being able to have those things, it hurts people's ability to make sense of the world. You know, so so if you think about people who have died, you know, if someone has died, you gather together, often they're singing and, uh, and telling stories about the person and a group set of grieving. Well, all that is not happening now. And so I don't know, and we, you know, as human beings grieving and gathering together and making sense of someone who's passed is an important part of being human. So how do you do that? And how do you keep doing that at the same time, not allow a public health crisis where a lot of people are injured or killed? How does this begin to unravel if it is so dangerous to congregate? What happens when we have something that is striking right at the core of religion and practice and devotion and community? I believe that we are now at what I would call the Yavna moment in American Judaism. Uh, Yavna was the historical period after the Romans destroyed the Second Temple in Jerusalem, uh, whereby the sages regathered uh, at the portal, at uh, the uh, coastal city, as it were, of, of Yavna, and they reinvented Judaism as a as a system of ritual that is unconnected to the ancient temple, uh, which replaced uh, the ancient uh, priestly class with a scholarly class, and which actually replaced uh, the altar of the of the temple with the dining table and with the synagogue itself, and that was a major major change in uh, Jewish life. I think the second change that we are dealing with is something as momentous as the Enlightenment and the Emancipation uh, at the beginning uh, of the 1800s. And we are so much in the middle of these moments right now, these new moments of Yavne, that we cannot predict what it's going to look like uh, on the other side. I think there is a real temptation to view that the minor changes, reforms, as it were, that we're going to have to make in worship will be permanent. People talk about the new normal. Some people will take advantage of this trimming, for example, of the liturgy down to uh, a palatable time uh, length for, uh, for Zoom, and they may just not want to return to uh, what the old liturgy looked like uh, and felt like. That would be a shame especially because, yes, Judaism is very, very tactile. Uh, it is about being with people. It is, in, in one sense, Catholic or Episcopalian, uh, in the sense that it has an at attachment, though not a veneration, uh, of objects. And something is missing when you do not have uh, that in front of you. One of the big controversies among my colleagues has been, do we broadcast services from our own homes 
boards, we let ourselves into our synagogues and give people the comfort of seeing their sanctuary as we are broadcasting our services, albeit uh, to an empty sanctuary. So you see that we're all now in a moment of churning. And that word, like that word sanctuary, is the perfect word because there is a comfort in being in a space that's supposed to be sacred, that's supposed to give comfort, that's supposed to give meaning. And uh, where you go in a time of need and, and people can't go there. One, one thing I was thinking, I've been thinking a lot about is uh, actually two things. One is we just don't know any enough. This disease is so new that we don't know how fatal it is. We don't know when we might have vaccine. We don't know what it does to people over the long term. So there's there were immediate steps taken to address this and to stop the spread. And now we're in the, okay, how do we live with this long term? And that's a very, there's, there, there's probably, you know, religion, one of the uh, things that religion uh, talks about or, or, or different faiths do talk about is this idea of patience, patience being a virtue. And we, in for a 24-7 online world, patience is very difficult. Uh, so I wonder if there are some things that our religious groups can lean into and say, oh, we have, we've got to learn some patience here as we figure out how to live with this new disease, which has disrupted things. But then I, the other part is that there is, and this virus can cause an existential threat to religious communities in that religious communities, when they gather, that's often when people uh, give their donations, uh, that's often, and often those are older folks who are the bulk of people who give most to support religious uh, communities. And some communities, especially smaller ones and uh, from communities of color, live, you know, week to week. Well, people are not gathering together. They're not donating. They may not, they may have lost their job. So, and if they're older and folks can't come back, all of a sudden, you know, religious communities which were in trouble already because we're seeing some decline in institutional religion are facing the a future saying, if we were sh not able to meet for a year, we may never start up. In the same way a small business couldn't or a theater. Like th there are, there are uh, existential threats here. The same way small businesses are, are asking the same question. And I think that those are important questions too. And, and we, we, we get and get in a false dichotomy that says, well, you could either have uh, people meeting together and some, you know, and having economic activity, or you could have people die. And I think that because, and I'm not a scientist, but it appears that we won't have a vaccine for a while and with this disease will be with us for a long time. How do religious communities adapt and change in a way that they can survive long term? while protecting people's health? That's that's a very complicated question. And I think maybe the question of this virtue of patience is something we could all talk about a little bit more. You know, there's a, long, there's a larger conversation here, uh, which I think is very important. Uh, number one, the financial liability of our institutions going forward. Uh, what Yes, what donations will look like if we cannot be in a physical place. Uh, the uh, fear that this is sending through uh, many Jewish organizations at this particular time. I think that's a, an appropriate conversation for 
a, a later time. But also, I think there's a larger conversation, uh, an ever-renewed conversation, about uh, the nature of faith. And, um, you know, the, the, the famous, infamous, as it were, Lisbon earthquake destroyed a lot of uh, traditional theologies in its wake, especially with the tsunami that accompanied it. We're now living through a medical tsunami, and I wonder over and over again to what extent uh, the, the words of our, our liturgies uh, will resonate with people. Uh, do we now need to once again rethink and reimagine what a theodicy would look like? Why a good God would allow something like this uh, to happen? Or as it, let me put it to you this way, in a global sense, are we all now, uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner, asking when bad things happens to a good world? Yeah, I, 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 that's exactly right. I, I think the the one thing uh, I was just in a long conversation with our with Aisha Khan, who is our uh, Islam reporter at uh, RNS, and about just all the ways that people have adapted. I think that's the one thing that is has been fascinating during this time is just to see how quickly and creatively religious communities have adapted and have tried to figure this out. And so they've done that in ten weeks give them more time and they probably can figure out more creative ways to respond. So one thing, one thing about religion is always adaptable. It always changes. It has, it is uh, persistent. Uh, and I think that's something to, uh, to watch. It's not all bad news. There's a lot of persistence, a lot of creativity. I think my favorite story of all this was watching a congregation in, uh, uh, Rural Alaska, on the uh, in a fishing village by the um, Bering Sea, having a drive-through church service in what looked like a blizzard, with the minister in his parka standing with the microphone and all the people, and they had a great time. It was just the photos were just. I just thought this is wonderful. This is like okay, people are like oh, people have said, well, we can't be together. We want to be together. Let's figure this out. And uh, there were obstacles, but those obstacles are not insurmountable. So I think that's kind of the, the one of the lessons this time is that religion will adapt and be flexible and people will find something new. Rabbi Salkin, you are the author of Martini Judaism, an opinion columnist at Religion News Service. Bob Smetana is our editor-in-chief at Religion News Service. I thank you both for joining us on Beliefs, and I hope we can revisit this topic in two months and see what Labor Day looks like as we move into Memorial Day. Maybe we will see a different landscape in three months. I hope so, please. God, please. (laughs) Thank you, gentlemen, both. I appreciate your time. All right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. I just want to say this was great fun. Thanks so much. Our guests this week were Rabbi Jeffrey Salkin and RNS Editor-in-Chief Bob Smetana. The conversations continue on our Facebook page and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer. Theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker, and thank you for listening.